Well, it's a wonderful opportunity we have to be together with God's people on this day of worship on Sunday, and it is my pleasure to be here at Living Hope Bible Church and to be a part of your retreat again. Apparently, you didn't get enough of me the last time I was here, so I'm back again to persecute you. So it's a, it's a joy to be here. And hopefully, some of the things that we're talking about in regards to depression will be helpful in your own personal walk with Christ, as well as you'll be able to turn around and help others with it um, as well. Um, One of the first things I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for you to take your Bible and let's go back to the book of Ecclesiastes because I told you that we'd be going back there. And um, I want to take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And if you would follow along as I read... Chapter 7 in the book of Ecclesiastes actually marks a pivotal point in the book. And in fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes um, hangs on the hinge of chapter 7. You can't really understand the book of Ecclesiastes until you understand Ecclesiastes 7. Once you understand Ecclesiastes 7, then everything makes sense. Everything starts to fall together. And we started earlier in our retreat talking about the early chapters of Ecclesiastes, and we said that Solomon actually wrote the book, and um, the first six chapters are actually his uh, uh, personal testimony of what he went through in his own life when his life was wedded to the things of this world. And we said that he used that word of all, which means... uh, Uh, breath or smoke, or uh, I like to translate it soap bubbles. It doesn't actually translate as soap bubbles, but soap bubbles works because that's everything in this world. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, everything in this world is soap bubbles. It's here for a short amount of time, and then it's gone. All right? So let's pick up in chapter 7 in verse 1 and follow along as I read the first 14 verses. A good name is better than good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so the laughter of a fool, and this too, is folly. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it better that the former uh, days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now, earlier, we talked about depression. We said depression was not discouragement. We said discouragement was when a person feels down. And yet in our colloquial way of using the English word depression, which is relatively new to history because literally for centuries there was no word for depression in the English language. It was really the word melancholy or melancholia. And when you read books prior to the 1700s and they refer to melancholia, they're referring to depression. If you read the first three to four centuries of the church fathers, they referred to depression as sloth. And so over the years, the terms to describe this particular difficulty has changed, but the issue has not changed. 
And we said that discouragement, which sometimes we refer to as I'm depressed, it's really an illegitimate use of the term, but discouragement, I don't feel good today, I'm not on top of things, is not a sin. That's just when a person is down and everybody gets down. That's not sinful. However, when a person is down and out and they have withdrawn from their God-given responsibilities and they are no longer fulfilling anything that God wants them to do or most of the things God wants them to do as their responsibility as a husband, their responsibility as a wife, their responsibility as a parent, their responsibility as a young person at school, or whatever that responsibility may be, they've just withdrawn from life, then genuine depression from a biblical standpoint is a sin as long as it is not organic. And there are organic problems, real genuine illnesses that cause depression. So those have to be ruled out. We'll talk about that again a little bit more today. But if we've ruled those out, then we have to address this particular issue from a spiritual perspective. And by the way, while we're on that, let me throw this in to stir the pot a little bit. You know how I like to do that. Your pastor understands that. Do you know that never in all of history, never, not one single case, has there ever been a case of mental illness. That's never been in all of history. It is a falsehood. There is no such thing as mental illness. Never was such thing as mental illness. Why? You say, how can you say that? Have you ever been to a psychiatric unit? Those people are crazy. Well, that's not mental illness. Because it is impossible follow me here, for the mind to be ill. It's impossible. The brain can be ill. That physical organ in your head can have a cancer. It can have aneurysm. It can have a tumor. It can have those things. That can be in your brain. It can be ill, but your mind cannot get ill. Your mind is that non-physical entity that is a part of your soul slash spirit. Now, in the Bible, there's a distinction between soul and spirit, but they speak of the same thing. The soul is the intangible part of man in relationship to the body. The spirit is the intangible part of man out of relationship with the body. And there is a distinction between those two, but yet they speak of the same entity that is who you are without your body, who you are without your body. The apostle Paul talks about that in second Corinthians five, nine, where he talks about being absent from the body. He talks about, uh, leaving his body, um, and experiencing heaven and the delights of heaven, or at least seeing sights of heaven, something that later on John does. So Christians are not monists. They don't believe we're just a biological functioning being. Christians are dualists. This is not me. When you look at this thing, it's not me. Me is uh, in here. That's me. When I look at this thing on the outside, that's not you. You is in here. When this is dead, I still exist. I'm still with God. I'm, I'm still, that's who I am. That's where the mind is. The mind is a part of your spiritual reality and it does not suffer from disease or illness. It doesn't do that. Even though when your mind is a part of your body, that one affects the other. Um, your mind functions within the containment of a brain. While your mind is suffering within, or suffering, that's probably a good word, is in, in, encased within the body and with the brain, what happens to the brain can affect the way you think, and what happens to the way you think can affect your brain in reverse fashion. 
For example, um, I can have uh, a tumor in my brain, and that tumor affects the way that I think as long as my spirit is united to my body. But I can also have nothing wrong with my brain, and I can receive very distressing, discouraging news which then triggers certain things in my physical body and brain that releases hormones in my body, and that affects, affects my body and actually represses my immune system, and I have a tendency to get sick. So my mental state can affect my physical state, and my physical state can affect my mental state. But it's important for Christians to understand that they, nevertheless, are two different things. Who I am in the brain who I am in spirit or mind is two different things. That's why we say there is no such thing as mental illness. There has never been any such thing as mental illness. There are brain illnesses, and then there are spiritual problems. Who coined the term? Actually, Sigmund Freud coined the term mental illness. You know why? Because he desperately wanted the soft, and I'm going to use the word very broadly, soft science of psychology to be wedded with the harder biological sciences. That's why he coined the term mental illness. And we use it all the time today. A person who is depressed is either organically sick and has a genuine organic illness, or they have a spiritual problem. But a person who is depressed never has a mental illness. Never. We have to begin to think like Christians in this area. Now you say, okay, you just read a very difficult part of the book of Ecclesiastes. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. All right. Let's go back to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And let's understand for a moment, after we've set this up, That chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes was written with one purpose in mind, and that is Solomon wanted to divorce the people of Israel from their materialism. And he uses his life in an autobiographical sketch. And in a sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is an autobiographical polemic to argue his people away from their materialism. Boy, it's almost as if the book of Ecclesiastes was written yesterday to Americans who are incredibly materialistic. Because Solomon says, this is where materialism is going to take you. And we saw that at the end of chapter 2. Well... We'll pick up. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, So I hated life for the work which has been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Verse 18, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun and uh, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He, he, he says, philosophically, this is where you're going when you're a materialist. You are going to hate life. There, when you wed your heart to the things of this world, that's what's going to happen. So chapters 1 through 6 is to drive the people of Israel into despair over their materialism. That's what he wants to do. He wants them to see the philosophical, logical ends of where they are going because this is where it took him and this is where he had led them. You understand, he's working out of a sensitive consciousness of guilt. If you study the Bible and you study the life of Solomon, you realize Solomon was judged by God, and there is no historical record of ever his repentance because of the judgment. Now, I do believe Solomon repented, and I think Ecclesiastes is proof of his repentance since the whole purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to be an apologetical polemic to argue his people away from a lifestyle that he had led them into. You follow me? That's really key. He was the one who led them there, but he was there. He saw where it led them. It led them to disaster and despair. All he looked for was happiness in this world, pleasure in this world, joy in this world. That's all he looked for in this world. 
You're beginning to see how this applies to people who are especially depressed because people who are often depressed on a spiritual level are doing exactly the same thing. Somehow, if I can find things correct in this world or things go well with me in this world or if I can experience happiness or pleasure or joy in this world, then everything's settled. Everything's good. I'm all right. Solomon says, you'll end up hating life, hating life. It's grievous. It's chasing after the wind. It's trying to hold on to soap bubbles. You can't. Soap bubbles are real pretty for a short amount of time. (gasps) My grandkids love soap bubbles. You want to make my grandkids happy? Just buy them a great big thing of soap bubbles, turn them loose in the backyard, and they're just having a ball. But do you know how long that lasts? Only as long as that bottle of soap lasts. And it's gone. That's gone. And then they're back. What else do you have for me? (laughs) That's a a microcosm of our entire lives. What else, God? I'm not happy anymore. Life should be a Disneyland experience every day. (laughs) And it's not. It's not. In fact, Solomon now reverses course in chapter 7 and verse 1. A radical about face. And chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes, the purpose of that is to wed the people of Israel to the fear of the Lord. They don't fear the Lord. The Lord is only there as their cosmic genie to give them happiness in life. It's sort of, Israel had the Joel Olstein approach to Christian life. God is there to bring me happiness. No, he's not. God is there to make you holy. There's a difference. To make you holy. And Solomon says, verse 1, a good name is better than good ointment. Now, you don't understand what that means because you're not in the culture of that society, but ointment in those particular days were actually used for times of celebration and partying. They would pour oil on their head during times of celebration. That's party time. All right? He says, a good name... Character, character is better than parties. Far better in the Christian life. That's so key. And listen to this. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. But wait a minute, we celebrate birthdays. We don't celebrate death days. Why is the day of one's death better? Well, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you went to a party? And after you were at that party, you walked away and you said, wow, man, I am a better person after being there. That never happens. But when's the last time you stood next to the casket of somebody that you dearly love? And you know that you're never, ever going to see them on this earth again. You may see them in heaven, but your heart is crushed. Crushed. And you're torn on the inside. And you hurt, and there's nothing that can reach that hurt. It just hurts. You can feel that deep, settled grief inside and you can feel the darkness descend over you and it never goes away. It may lessen a bit, but that's somebody that you dearly loved. They're gone. They're gone. They're not coming back. Not in this lifetime. And you walked away from that. And all of a sudden, everything is different in your life. 
somehow all the things that you're trying to work for that seem so important to you before the loss of that loved one. Not important anymore. Not important. All of a sudden, death has realigned your priorities. What's really important in my life? What's really significant in my life? What is it that brings meaning and significance to my life and real purpose to my life? All those things I work so hard to acquire, cars and houses and stuff. My dad used to call it all stuff. And you have to find a place to put your stuff and you have to dust your stuff and you have to care for your stuff and your stuff can be taken. And we Americans have so much stuff, we have to buy special storage rooms for our stuff and rent them out and put our stuff in those storage rooms. We have stuff everywhere. But after you've stood next to the casket of somebody you love, That stuff is nothing but a soap bubble. Just a soap bubble. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better in the sense that it's more profitable to you in terms of what is it that makes life life. He's saying it's some of the darkest times of life that make life so meaningful. Verse 2. It's better to go to house of mourning than to go to house of feasting. That's the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, the heart may be happy. Now, what he's really saying, it seems incongruous that the face is sad, and yet the heart is happy in the sense that You're taking the important things of life seriously now. And there's a certain type of contentment that settles into the heart that's deeper than the things of this world. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. I love historical stuff. When my kids were small, we'd take our kids on vacations to all these historical sites. I'd bore them to death. (laughs) All right. One day we went to Galena, Illinois. Some of you may not know where Galena, Illinois is. It's the it's the where the home of Ulysses S. Grant, the great general during the Civil War. And here in the U.S. it was. And I took the kids and my wife through a tour of Ulysses S. Grant's home, and they have women dressed in the costume in the mid 1800s taking you on tour. And I got this woman who is a pretty good historian, and we got to talking a lot about. And when you go up into Grant's home, you turn right, and you immediately turn right again, and there you're in a long room called a parlor. And so she and I got talking, and I, I happened to mention, you know, there are no real parlors in American homes anymore. And she says, oh, do you know why? She says, well, look at this parlor, the way it's arranged. They built these on homes in America because... People were always dying. And, and your loved one would lay in state in the parlor. And it was a long room on the front of the house. And they had a door on one end, a door on another. And friends would come in one door and walk past and then walk out the other door, walk out the other end. And that's exactly the way Ulysses S. Grant there in Galena, Illinois, house is built with that parlor in there. And grandpa or grandma or maybe a young child that had passed away is always laying their casket. So you get up in the morning and go down and see grandma laying there in the parlor. See, for centuries, our forefathers and foremothers were very acquainted with death. And we think that that's terrible and morbid. Solomon didn't see that that way. In fact, she said, you know, an interesting thing happened in the beginning of the 1900s. There were some women socialites who worked for New York magazines who decided that parlors were really horrible, morbid things, and they wrote scathing articles about parlors and homes, and all of a sudden, American architecture radically changed, and they started not building parlors on homes anymore, and a new room showed up, an American architecture. It was called the living room. 
not the death room. We now have a living room. Prior to the, in the 1800s, 1700s, there was no such thing as a living room in a home. There was only a death parlor because people were dying. You see? Now we've moved death down the street to the funeral parlor. See? That's where death is. So we don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about it. Our forefathers and foremothers were acquainted with it all the time. Death. There it is. You come down in the morning and there's grandma laying in her casket. There's that five-year-old kid. Your brother, your sister, your child laying in that casket. They were very acquainted with that. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And notice what he says. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, the heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than listen to the song of a fool. Nobody likes to listen to rebukes. It hurts. It's painful. I don't want to have somebody rebuke me, and it's true what they have to say. I don't want that. I'd rather go around and have headphones on and listen to nonsense music all day long. Solomon said that's meaningless. Music is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. A rebuke is far better for you than music. Wow. Because it changes you. It changes you. Substantively. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of fool. Now that's really significant. Because I used to take my kids camping. We'd, I'd have them go out and gather firewood out of the woods, bring it in. We'd build a campfire, that type of thing. Once in a while, they'd bring thorn bushes in. And the interesting thing about thorn bushes, once you light a fire and throw the thorn bushes in, they pop and sizzle, pop, 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 send sparks up in the air. Oh, and you go, oh, and then they're gone, just like those soap bubbles. All right, impressive for a few seconds, then they're gone. But you know one thing? Thorn bushes are never going to cook a meal for you. They can't because there's not enough heat generated. They're not going to warm you like a good solid piece of wood. You need a good solid. And it's not very impressive, but boy, it works. That good solid piece of wood, you put that on the fire. Oh, you can cook your meal with it. You can warm yourself for several hours with it. It's very, very beneficial. Well, he says... Laughter is like living for pleasure, comedy club type of existence. You see, living for pleasure in comedy clubs is foolish. It's futility. It's like thorn bushes under a pot. It's never going to cook your meal. It's nothing. It's there for a short amount of time and then it's gone. Oh, there's so much more I could say, but look at verse 14. So he says, In the day of prosperity, when things are going your way, everything's going your way, everything's great. He says, enjoy that. That's fine. Enjoy that. He's not saying you can't enjoy prosperity. He's not saying that. But remember this. In the day of adversity, adversity is a very broad Hebrew term. It's used here. Adversity can include anything, any trial, difficulty, or depression, In the day of depression, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Now, that's my introduction. (laughs) How can we help a person that's depressed? Facts about depressed people. They have become immobile because, remember, our definition of the, is that a depressed person has withdrawn from life. They become immobile, dealing with, especially in dealing with top priority problems and responsibilities. They only talk about their problems. They never really do anything about the, their problems. They love to talk about it. We mentioned that earlier. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 
Verse 19, Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Most of the time, when you're working with a depressed person, they have unbiblical checkpoints. Unbiblical checkpoints. And by that, I mean, they think that the answer to their problem is to feel better. That's an unbiblical checkpoint. Because that's the wrong goal. They're aiming at the wrong thing. A good medical doctor understands this issue because one of the reasons, if you you have a severe pain and you go to the emergency room and you want desperately, give me a painkiller. But the doctor knows if I give that painkiller, I'm going to cover up a symptom. I'm not going to be able to diagnose this. That's the way a depressed person is. Get me out of this depression as quickly as possible. I'm miserable. Wrong goal. You say, what should be the goal? Lord, help me to learn everything I need to learn through this dark experience in my life and learn how to trust you more. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And biblical check points. They're very feeling oriented. How I feel governs my life. Rather than being gospel centered, commandment oriented, they're feeling oriented. You need to help them to be gospel centered and commandment oriented. And they will say, my situation is unique. It's unique. I I don't know how many times I've had people say that to me in working with their depression. They'll look at me, and and in all sincerity, they will say to me, "You, you just don't know what I'm going through. Well, maybe I don't, but that's very presumptive of them because they don't know my life. They don't know that I haven't gone through the same depression they've gone through and maybe even worse depression. It's just that to them, it doesn't look like I have. Maybe I've handled my depression biblically and they haven't learned how to do that yet. It's very presumption. I'm unique. Well, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, there is no temptation taking you except for what is common to man. And God is faithful. In other words, other Christians have faced the same thing and been able to face it successfully. Other Christians have faced the same thing and been able to, and God is always faithful in the midst of it. He will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but with that temptation, he will always, always provide a way of escape. That's certainly true. Now, if you're attempting to help this person, one of the key things that you must do is you've got to get a good grasp of the problem. Their understanding of the problem, the person who's depressed, um, when they present their problem, you understand that they are presenting their understanding of what the problem is. That may not be the real problem. But it's important that you get a good grasp of what they think their understanding of the problem is. For example, they may come and say to you, I'm tired most of the time. I find myself crying a lot. I'm nervous. I never get anything done. My husband just doesn't understand me and yells at me. Now, you understand, they're presenting to you their understanding of the problem. That may not be the real problem. Um, Especially as God would see it. So it's important that they get a good grasp on what the real problem is. Note this information is presented by the counselee as the cause of the problem, but the counselor must see this as the effect rather than the cause. The effect is, I'm tired, I cry, I'm nervous. That's the effect. 
It's not the cause. It's not the problem. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5. That's a wonderful chapter, uh, but let's just drop into verse 5 just for a moment. Um, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Uh, The word for plan, the Hebrew word, can mean purpose or desire, um, a desire in the heart of a man or a plan in the heart of a man or a purpose in the heart of a man is like deep water. In fact, it's hidden. It's hidden down deep underneath. But a man of understanding is able to draw it out, to bring it out. I can't see people's hearts, but a man using godly wisdom can bring out of their hearts what's really going on. What's really going on in that person's heart? What's really happening? So there's such a thing in counseling as a presentation problem. And then secondly, there's such a thing as a performance problem. How are they really functioning? What's really going on? Remember how we talked about a severely depressed person has withdrawn from life, right? So what's really going on? It becomes important. Look for their thinking and actions that produce the feeling. How are they thinking? How are they functioning that produces the feelings? Example, I've stopped work. The ironing's not done. Dishes are in the sink. I'm not preparing meals anymore. My husband is just yelling at me. Um, How are they functioning? What's really happening? That's really important. What effect has that had in their life? Part of the cause of the depression is that the performance has ceased to be right. Consequently, the feelings are not right. Now, if all you do is just correct the performance, then you've turned them into a really good Pharisee. You don't want to just correct the performance. You want to deal with the hard issues so they're doing all the right things for all the right reasons, right? But performance is nevertheless... How they're functioning in life is really key. I want to find that out as a counselor. I want to make sure I really know what's really happening in their life. Look for wants. Look for desires. Look for idols that are a part of their heart. Idols are anything that's more important than God. Look for those things. We have functional idols all the time. John Calvin used to say, the heart is a constant idol factory. In other words, it keeps cranking out idols that we worship rather than God. For example, is it wrong for a wife to say, I want my husband to love me? That's not wrong. That's a very legitimate desire. But in a nanosecond, that desire can become an idolatrous desire. Say, how is that possible? Well, when that desire, I want my husband to love me, becomes more important than being God's kind of woman, that's when that becomes... How do you know when it has ha- that's happened that way? Because having her husband love her is the first thing she thinks about when she gets up in the morning. It's the last thing she thinks about before she goes to bed. It consumes her thoughts all day long. And when she doesn't receive what she thinks she really deserves, that is the love of her husband, then she's angry. She's upset. She's depressed. She's hateful. Or maybe she goes the other extreme and she's withdrawn and she's sullen and she's depressed. See? The other extreme. So in either case, whether it's outwardly seen or inwardly processed, she's not handling life white. Why is that? Because being God's kind of woman now has fallen second to I want my husband to love me. Same thing's true with a husband. A husband may say, you know, all I want in my life is for my wife to respect me. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Should she, as a godly wife, respect her husband? Sure, absolutely. Can it become wrong? Yes. In a nanosecond. When? When becoming God's kind of man is of lesser importance than his desire 
to be respected by his wife. It's the first thing he thinks about when he gets up in the morning. It's the last thing he thinks about before he goes to bed. He dwells upon that issue all day long. And when he doesn't receive the respect that he thinks he deserves from his wife, he becomes angry, hateful, mean, oppressive, or maybe he withdraws and becomes sullen, moody, depressed. That's when that idol... That desire that starts off as a very legitimate desire becomes an idolatrous desire in his, in his life. He's got to be able to see that desire. That's the reason why we say you've got to look for those once desires and idols. Fourth, there's a preconditioning aspect. Preconditioning. How far back does this problem extend? What habits have been formed that make it easy to respond as they are now? They may say when you're counseling them, you know, every time I get into a situation like this, I always respond. All of a sudden, you have found that preconditioning aspect or at least one aspect of it. When they find themselves in a similar situation, example, I started tapering off my housework three years ago. Why? Why did she do that? She's discouraged in her marriage. She formed an I don't feel like it approach to work. Now she only talks about her problems, but she never does anything about them. So everything now and all of her responsibilities now slide because she is so fixated on this issue, whatever the issue may be in her life. She's no longer functioning as a godly wife or as a godly mother or as a godly woman. She's no longer functioning that way. There's a preconditioning aspect. You can see how this goes. Oftentimes, there's adversity or something that happens in our life that we don't like, which forms sinful responses in our life. That, in turn, produces bad feelings, which then, in turn, produces even greater sinful responses. That increases our bad feelings. Then there's greater irresponsibility. Until we get to the point there's just abject despair, suicide, suicidal thoughts. This is that downward spiral, and as it goes down, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. That's what happens. Now, how not to handle this type of a person? How not to handle this person? One of the worst things you could do is just be supportive. <laughs> That's almost the first thing that worldly counsel would have you do. Just be supportive. Now, we want to be supportive. But if that's all you are, then you actually may be encouraging that person in their irresponsibility, right? You may be encouraging them in their sin. You're not giving them any help at all. That says that God has no answers. You're just supportive. I'm going to hold your hand while you wallow in self-pity. Is that going to help them? Nope. That's just going to encourage them to wallow more and more in self-pity. Minimize thoughts of hostility and guilt, which basically says that counselor doesn't understand. We're going to talk about guilt in our very next session. Both A and B fail to treat the counselee as a res is responsible before God and thus remove hope. When hope is gone, the depression leads to despair, and then that ultimately leads to suicide. So we don't want to handle it that way. We want to be able to come alongside and help them not continue in their sin but get biblical answers. You see the difference? We want to help them get biblical answers. That's really key. So get plenty of information. This is really key. You've got to know the problem. Know what's going on. One of the biggest failures of new counselors is that they don't listen enough. They don't ask enough questions. They don't understand where that person's really coming from. You need to gain involvement with them. And that means you get, need to get to know what's really going on in their life. Gain involvement. Use journals, thought journals. Sometimes in those thought journals, I have them answer four questions. 
Every time they feel depression coming on, number one, I want to know what happened. That's the first thing I want to know. Number two, who was around? Because oftentimes you'll see a theme of certain people coming in and out of their life that helps to trigger that depression. Number three, what were you thinking and what did you want? What were you thinking and what did you want in that journal? What were you thinking and what did you want? That reveals a lot of data. Number four, and this is the hardest question of them all, but I want them to try to answer it as best as they can. What does God want from you in your thoughts, in your desires, in your deeds? What does God want from you? And they may not be able to answer that accurately, but I want them to try to answer it. And I tell them, and in counseling, I'll help them answer that. What does God want them to think about that situation? Four things. What happened? Who was around? What were you thinking? And what did you want at that particular time when you felt the depression coming on? A lot of people don't know their own heart. They haven't really analyzed their own heart. What is it that I really wanted when I started feeling really down and withdrawing from my responsibilities? And then what, what would God have you to think, desire, or want? Those four questions help to pull out good information. Make sure there has been a recent medical checkup. That's really key. We want to rule out any kind of physical Issues that may be going on. Now, this is really important. Explain the dynamics of depression and how they lead into a downward spiral. Like we saw with Cain. Uh, we didn't have time to study Saul and Elijah to any depth, but Saul and Elijah are good case studies on this. Give much hope. Give much hope. First uh, Corinthians 10 and verse 13 uh, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Um, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and 29. Give lots and lots of hope. Second uh, Peter 1, 3. Um, there is a time will, where they will live on your hope. And that's Okay. Just the fact that you have hope, they don't have any hope, but they're willing to grasp onto your hope is all right. That's okay. But you don't want them to hold on to you all the time. You want to slowly peel their fingers off of you and have them hold on to the hope here because you're one of those soap bubbles in their life. You're not always going to be around. This will always be around. So you want their hope to be anchored to something secure. For a time, they hope just because you hope. But you want to transfer this hope here to this truth. This is really important and, and vital in making that transition. Replace old habits, especially thinking, with biblical habits. Um, you can see this with desires. We need to replace old desires, ungodly desires, desires that are attached to the things of this world with biblical ones. Replace old thinking, ungodly thinking, um, deistic type of thoughts that we talked about the other day with theistic thinking, with Christ-centered thinking. For example, it comes out in statements like, I can't. Depressed people say that all the time. I can't. No, no, no. You haven't learned how to yet. That's defeatist language. I can't. You're, 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 when you say I can't, that means that God has provided no way out. You've been painted into a corner. There's no biblical way that you can get out of this problem. That's not true. I'm no good. No, you have Christ's righteousness. I'm lonely. I'm alone, but you choose to be lonely. Or they'll say, I stutter, like, like Moses did, Exodus chapter 4. And God said, who is it that really made your mouth? Who made your mouth? God turned Moses into a great leader, even though he lacked personal confidence. 
Actions. Get the depressed person sweating physically and spiritually. Get them working on the problem. And you, you understand that that's one of the last things that they want to do. They don't want to do that. You may have to do it slowly. You may have to do it incrementally, a little bit at a time and increasing that a little bit by little bit, but get them working. The more they do and fulfill their responsibilities, remember how we talked about in Genesis 4, 7, God said right from the very beginning, there is always joy in obedience. There's always joy in obedience. John chapter 10, later on in verse 15, God says the, to the disciples, or Jesus says to the disciples, now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, that reinforces the same statement of Genesis 4, 7. Um, if you know the right things to do and you do the right things, there will be blessedness in doing it. But you see, oftentimes what we want to do as Christians, we want to say, well, uh, Lord, bless me, and then I'll do the right thing. Make me feel good, and then I'll do the right thing. No, 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 no. That's the cart before the horse. No, no, no. You do the right thing, and then you will feel blessed. That's always the order. You do the right thing, and you will. Now, it's not automatic. Sometimes it takes perseverance, but you continue persevering, doing that which is right, then the good feelings come. Reverse the spiral with right desires and motives, right thinking. This is that Philippians 4, 8 thing. Um, uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. If I had more time, I'd go through these. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Confess and deal with idols that are a part of the heart. What did you want so badly that pleasing God in that area became unimportant? That's really key to identifying the idol in their heart. What did they want so badly? I wanted so badly that pleasing God in that area became unimportant. What did they want? Right doing, regardless of feelings. I don't no longer living upon my feelings. I'm living upon what God tells me that I should be doing, and he will give me the strength to do it. John 13, 17, James 1, 25, Luke 9, and verse 23, all emphasize doing the right thing. Get others to encourage you and to watch for your excuses of not doing. If you get behind, allow yourself no privileges until you get caught up. TV visits, computers, etc. Find a neighbor or a friend to work with you. Studiously avoid all daydreaming, television watching, and self-pity parties. When you see this developing, then get to work. These are guidelines I give all my counselees. We talk through these very carefully. They're all in your notes there. Uh, address yourself to the real cause of these slow down or these down feelings and do right about them. Define the problem. What does the Bible say you've got to do? When? Where? How do I begin that? How do I schedule um, my work in order to get it completed, to get it finished? That's really key. Um, so, uh, what are some of the ideas then in helping uh, the depressed person? Uh, ideas for ministering to the depressed person in a holistic way physically. Uh, prescribe appropriate activity and exercise. We're not trying to prepare them for marathons. Just, just light exercise to begin with. You may increase it a little bit as time goes on nutritionally. Check their diet. Give information or enlist the help of a dietitian. Sleep. They need to be getting regular sleep. Relaxation exercises. Breathing exercises. Counsel about sleep problems. Counsel and information about medications, coffee, tea, chocolate, and other stimulants or depressants. Uh, the help of medical people for physical infirmities. So you need to address their physical body because this has a physical effect. Theologically, um, chapters from spiritual depression, its causes and cures. Or um, Ed Welch's new book called The Stubborn Darkness would be helpful. Or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Because a depressed person has a distorted view of God. Um, uh, or Bible book studies. Um, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I use that all the time. Completely Forgiven by C. John Miller. A Repentance of the 20th Century Man by Miller. 
Uh, Out of the Blues, Dealing with the Blues of Depression and Loneliness by Wayne Mack. So address the theological issues of their heart. In addition, cognitively, (coughs) have them keep thought journals. What's going on in their thinking, in their mind? Um, The pamphlet, You Can uh, can Overcome Despondency by Wayne Mack. Uh, NANC or ACBC tapes on depression or downloads uh, CDs or videos online that have, there's a lot of material that's available online now. Uh, resources in, in Christ study. Uh, Jay Adams' booklet, Christ in Your Problems and Godliness Through Discipline. Selected chapters from Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd Jones. Selected studies in the Homework Manual by Wayne Mack. Um, a think list based upon Philippians 4 8 and stop cards every time they feel or they, they uh, identify their thinking, they've got stop cards to have them think correctly. Uh, then cognitively, or behaviorally, I should say. Um, weekly projected and completed schedules. Have them keep a schedule and increase the responsibilities of that as time goes on. Uh, graded task assignment. Um, I often do that with counselees. I want to grade them how, how well they did and completed their tasks. Do lists, responsibility lists, and records. Appropriate studies from the homework manual by Wayne Mack. What to do about depression by Jay Adams. Profitable thing, uh, things or a serve journal. Uh, behavioral rehearsal or role plays. I'll do frequently do that in counseling. A proverb study on behavior and work. Uh, four weeks with God and your neighbor by Adams. Then emotionally, um, what are their dese- desires and feelings? Uh, weekly, complete a schedule and a pleasure evaluation on how they enjoyed the responsibilities that God had given them. A mood rating journal, which is actually in the back of the journal um, homework manual for biblical counseling. Thoughts and feelings journal. A limited time period when emotions may be expressed appropriately. Appropriate assignments on various emotions from the homework manual. Uh, a, A make fun or pleasure list. Do at least two things on the pleasure list every day and evaluate the pleasure on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, Assign appropriate tapes on various emotions and listening assignments. Um, A praise and rejoice list or selected chapters in spiritual depression or defeating despair and depression by Norvelt or concordance study on emotion and feelings. And then there's socially and relationally appropriate studies from the homework manual, appropriate tapes and CDs, You can overcome uh, interpersonal conflicts by Wayne Mack, reciprocal commands type of study, a study of interpersonal social relations from Proverbs or passages, or a Bible study of fellowship and friendship, skills training and interpersonal relating to others. The Bible says a lot about that, a meaningful conflict journal, or motivationally, telically, uh, make a list of the benefits that will result from a change in them. Misery or disadvantages of not changing. List biblical reasons for believing that you can change. Resources in Christ study. Promises of God study. A hope study from Scripture. Uh, A study on God's purpose for living. A study on the purposes of trials and suffering. Write out a commitment to persevere on working and changing. A change statement. Appropriate chapters from spiritual depression. Defeating despair and depression. Does that give you a few ideas? What can you do with them? Remember how we said earlier, getting them to sweat physically and spiritually is a key thing. This is what I call in counseling, holy sweat. Holy sweat. You need to get that depressed person fulfilling small, very, very small responsibilities at the beginning but gradually greater and greater responsibilities and there will be corresponding joy that will occur in their life. Now, if all you do is change their behavior again, all you've done is turn them into a really good Pharisee. You've got to address their heart and their desires. You've got to find out what their functional gods are. You've got to make sure that they repent. But above all things, one of the biggest goals that you will fight which takes us right back to the beginning, is the fact that their goal is to feel better. Remember that? 
Solomon says there is actually great purpose in bad times. <laughs> when times are bad, remember, God has created the one as well as the other. Why? We must assume by very definition of who God is that His purposes are very good in my life. Very, very good. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we thank You for the process that You take us through in sanctification, divorcing us from the things of this world, wedding us to the things of God and especially the fear of the Lord. Help us, dear Lord, to learn those lessons well, even through some of the darkest times of our lives. And I pray for these men and women that have been a part of this retreat this weekend, that they'll be able to take what they have learned and really be a substantive help to people who are struggling in this area, taking them back to the Word of God, giving them hope in Christ, helping them to understand that this is not anything new to human experience, that God has enabled Christians down through the ages to deal with this and deal with it successfully, and He can enable them to do the same thing, but they have got to be willing to be obedient to Him. So I pray, dear Lord, that You'll help us to be good helpers, to come alongside and encourage people, not just arbitrary encouragement, but encourage them along the lines of righteousness. This we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.